joy to be back with you. On occasion, I get this privilege, I guess mostly because I went to school with Pastor Paolo. We went to Bible school together, and so you always trust the guys you went to Bible school with. But I understand what a privilege it is to, to stand at this pulpit and to open up the Word of God. I have a very uh, simple and maybe a provocative uh, sermon title for this morning that I believe that we should be exploring. And that is, it's taken from, first of all, from Luke chapter 4, and it is simply entitled, What in the World Was Jesus Doing in Synagogue? Now, normally we would expect to find Jesus in church, uh, but you see, it's been about 2,000 years since the events of Luke chapter 4 were recorded. And so it's important to understand that the way we look at things today simply is the result of these 2,000 years of changes. So let's kind of turn back the clock. If we had a visual here, the pages are turning back, we're going back in time, and we're going back to Luke chapter 4. So I'm going to turn there and I'll read the passages to you. If you have the Bible, um, I just broke down recently and I recently put a Bible on my phone. I was asking the Lord, is this okay? <laughs> because it's, it's not like the one that the Apostle Paul used, like the New American Standard, in, in a leather cover like this. Now, of course, he didn't use even one of those. He used a large scroll, and actually it's that scroll form that figures prominently in Luke chapter 4. So in turning there, one of the things we are reminded of about the Gospel of Luke is that of all of the four gospel accounts, Luke is the only one who actually states that he was putting all of these events in their consecutive order. Many of the other gospel accounts, um, Matthew, Mark, and John, often consider things thematically, or they'll consider things geographically, and those are the classic ways that theologians uh, will separate and try to make a, a harmony of the Gospels. But really, it is only in the book of Luke that Luke actually said, I set out to record these things as they happen. And so we have in the book of Luke a consecutive order that helps us to set all the other Gospels in their proper chronolo chronology. Now, there's nothing wrong with the other Gospels. They're fine. Each of the Gospels have a different theme. For instance, the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Matthew, is the, as we say in Hebrew, the bisorah, it's the good news to those of Jewish background. In the book of Mark, it was written particularly with a Roman audience in mind. We see that Jesus there is um, a servant of action. He does his father's will. In the book of John, we see uh, the full portrait of Messiah Jesus as the divine son of God. But in the book of Luke here, we have this consecutive portrait. And so in looking at the book of Luke and the gospel of Luke, in chapter 4, we are literally at the very beginning of the public ministry of Messiah Jesus. He goes through, and of course there in the early chapters of Luke and as well as Matthew, you have the narrative of the birth of Messiah Jesus and then we have, through Luke chapter 3, the evidence that he is the one who Scripture promised, that he is the Messiah, 
that he is the promised one who was prophesied in the prophetic accounts of the Old Testament, that Jesus didn't simply show up some 2,000 years ago and said, I think it's time to start a new religion. We're at the crossroads of the world. No, he showed up in fulfillment of what the Hebrew scriptures had promised. Recently, there was um, a well-known national uh, preacher who has a big platform, a lot of TV programs, and he made the unfortunate mistake of suggesting that if churches want to grow, if churches want to do better, we should unhitch from the Old Testament. That was his statement. Within hours, his phone was lighting up from friends of his, with whom he had also gone to Bible school, saying, what in the world are you saying? Without the Old Testament, there is no gospel. Messiah was promised in the pages of the Old Testament. When Jesus shows up, he shows up in fulfillment of what the Hebrew scriptures promised. Paul didn't invent some new religion, as some of the higher liberal critics might say. Higher liberal critics would say that, oh, that Paul saw an opportunity to make a synthesis between a little bit of Jewish culture, a little bit of pagan culture, and uh, Greek worldviews. When you actually examine that theory, it falls apart pronto. There's nothing to it. But rather, if we take the scriptures, if we take this narrative that we find in the book of Luke, take it literally, and there's no reason not to, we see that the very first public act of the ministry of Messiah was to go into a synagogue. So if you pick up uh, the passage there in Luke chapter 4, there is the famous uh, narrative of Jesus in the desert. He is praying. He is in essence, receiving additional strength and commissioning. Although Jesus was fully God and never let that go, at the same time, he was also ben adam, as we say in Hebrew. He was also fully man. And it was that human part of his that feels all that we feel. So if you're about to set off on a task that's going to be difficult, you feel uh, maybe a little bit of apprehension. You feel reluctance. You feel fear. Uh, you're tired before the job even begins. More so than anyone else did Jesus understand the enormity of the task in front of him. He understood that the very gates of hell would be coming against him. And so he understandably wrestled with God there in the desert. And God, his heavenly father, strengthened him. And even we see all three persons of the Godhead eventually here in the New Testament text. And so in Luke chapter 4, in the opening of that, we see that when Messiah is tempted by Satan, the response is, it thus says the scripture, or the scripture says, the word of God says, to every temptation of Satan, to every thing that was dangled in front of Messiah, the kingdoms of this world, power and glory, all of these outward things, all of these things which Satan had the ability to, to hand over, Messiah Jesus responded with the word of God. It is written. It is written. It is written. All of the passages from the book of Deuteronomy. 
So if we should unhitch from the Old Testament, you'd have to eviscerate half of the New Testament. It's directly carried forward. So Jesus, fully strengthened, is about to begin his public ministry. Where in the world should the Son of God begin this public ministry to proclaim that a Savior has come, that a Messiah is available? Maybe he should go to the power center of the world, to Rome. He certainly got an audience. There were synagogues in Rome. Maybe he should go to, maybe he should go to the, the Roman palace. Jesus could have levitated down into the courtyard of the Roman palace. Uh, I was doing a Bible teaching tour in Italy back in 2019. And I had the opportunity to be given a tour by the local Bible college of the, the ruins of the, the, the Roman Colosseum, all these, these buildings. It would have been a very dramatic thing if Jesus had simply levitated down and had proclaimed the message. He chose, however, a very, very different pathway. So in Luke chapter 4, in verse 14, this is what we read. And Jesus returned to the Galilee, northern Israel, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Understand that this is the year 30 A.D., give or take a few years. 30 A.D., there is no such thing as churches. The church would be born within the synagogue, and ultimately there would be a break between the two entities. But at this point, who in the world was waiting for a Messiah? The Romans were not waiting for a Messiah. The Romans were very self-satisfied with their temporal power with their armies. The Greeks were not waiting for a Messiah. They had their Greek books of wisdom. They were reading all of the, these, these Greek philosophers and were self-assured that they had the key to understanding. But who was waiting for a savior to come? It was the Jewish community who met in the synagogue. They had been promised by God that unto us a child is born. Onto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. By the way, that's a rabbinic idiom for meaning the, the office of Messiah, the office of rulership, the office of kingship. The government shall rest upon his shoulders. And these are his attributes. These are the names by which he shall be called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father. Wait, a baby's going to be called Everlasting Father? <laughs> no ordinary baby. And Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. To, the, to his rulership there shall be no end. Those are the passages, the passage right there from, Luke chapter, from, from Isaiah chapter 9 and the passage in Isaiah chapter 7 talking about the virgin birth. These passages written over 600 years previously they had meditated on those passages. The brother, just in uh, opening here, said, it does us no good to, to consider the word of God. It passes in one ear and out the other if there's nothing in between. What, what, does, what do we have to do with it? We have to turn it around in our mind. We have to meditate on it. We need to surrender to it also, as well. 
because then the word of God will take root in our souls. There are some of the folks here are familiar with gardening or even farming. If you take seed and you throw it up and it's a windy day, the seed just gets scattered, the birds are in the trees, they scoop down and they, uh, they take it all away. But rather we have to plant it deep within us. And that's what the Jewish community was doing in the hundreds of years before Messiah had come. They had been reading all of those passages. They had been anticipating the arrival of Messiah. And here, in Luke chapter 4, is the moment. So verse 16, And Yeshua, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. We remember the, the birth narrative that Mary and Joseph had to go down to Bethlehem from their home in Nazareth because that was their ancestral home and the Romans insisted that everyone show up where they were originally registered. So apparently they had been born there. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. Several things to note. Obviously, he was brought up in Nazareth. There is, uh, it's a hilly town. I've walked the streets of Nazareth. There was a large synagogue there. No more any, there are no more synagogues there. But at one time, there was a very large synagogue. They've discovered some of the stones, which they believe are the foundation stones. And that is the synagogue to which Yosef, the stepfather of Jesus would have, been, would have brought Jesus and his siblings because they were siblings. There were at least four or five brothers that are named, at least two sisters. And the family would have been present on most Saturday mornings, which is the Sabbath. One of the things that's important to understand is that we don't somehow superimpose our traditions on what we see in Old Testament practice. Because here in Luke chapter 4, we still have what is essentially Old Testament practice. The Messiah had not yet gone to the cross. Now, before anyone gets nervous, understand I totally embrace all of the doctrinal distinctives that bring me to this podium. I am thoroughly in, in harmony and agreement with them. But at the same time, that doesn't preclude us from recognizing that at this point in Luke chapter 4, Messiah had not yet gone to the cross. The new covenant had not yet been instituted. So, which covenant were believing Jewish people under at this point in time? It is the Mosaic law. That is the rule of life for that period of time. They were under the law. They were never saved by the law. By the way, no one ever got saved by keeping law. No one ever got saved by works. No one ever got saved by keeping a set of rules and regulations. But rather, it has always, in every generation, been faith that has saved. And so, yes, in the Old Testament, how were people saved? They were saved by faith. That's only been the only method by which God has used. Here's the example. Back in Genesis, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
the just shall live and be justified by faith. And so here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into that synagogue. As was his custom, it was the Sabbath. The biblical Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, runs from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. That was the Sabbath. It is the Sabbath. And I believe it will always be the Sabbath. Now, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. I happily embrace grace. And if you read carefully through Romans 9 through 11, it's very clear that I am no longer obligated to Mosaic law. And I heartily embrace that. But at this point in Luke chapter 4, Mosaic law is what is inoperative. It's operative to the, to the believers there. The Sabbath is from Friday night to Saturday night. So if your wheels are turning now, if the brain is working, you're saying, okay, well, what's Sunday? Isn't Sunday some sort of Sabbath? No, Sunday is called, in Scripture, one of the possible terms is the Lord's Day. Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day of resurrection. It's an important day to worship, but so is Tuesday morning or Wednesday night or any other time that you choose to worship. As believers, my friends, we are not obligated to a day. We find our Sabbath rest not in a day. We find our Sabbath rest in a person, in Messiah Jesus. We have entered, as the book of Hebrews says, into a Sabbath rest through our relationship with him. He is our Sabbath. It's very fine to observe a day. There's a whole groundswell. I was at a conference two weeks ago. There was a groundswell of, of the leadership saying to the workers, you need to take a Sabbath day's rest. You need to take a day off because a number of us just keep the pedal to the metal seven days a week. And so they were encouraging us, almost ordering us as ministry workers to take a day off. And that's a pattern we see in the scripture. So in verse 16, Messiah Jesus comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He goes to the synagogue where he had been brought up. People were familiar with him, but now there was a buzz. The buzz you see in the previous two verses. People were talking about this son of Yosef, the oldest son, the one who seemed so different the one who was always studious, who always was there by his parents to get into trouble with all the other boys. He stood out. He did what he was expected to do. But then he went away for a little while. He was away for a bit. And that is included in there in the early part of Luke chapter 4. And then he comes back to Nazareth, not Seret, as it would have been pronounced in Hebrew. As was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then it said he stood up to read. A couple of things there. When the word of God is read in Jewish synagogues, people always stand. The main part of a, uh, the typical weekday serve, the week, I'm sorry, the, the weekend service, the Sabbath service, is called the Shabbat service. It's called a Torah service. There is a Torah scroll in the front of the synagogue. It's contained in a large wooden cabinet. It is very ornate because the word of God is viewed as being a sacred object. We don't want to worship parchment. 
but we want to recognize that the word of God is holy. And so in the front of the synagogue, there would be large Torah scrolls. To this day, in any synagogue you go to, there is going to be a cabinet, a large wooden cabinet, seven to eight to even higher than that, very large, and they will have several Torah scrolls in them. These are all handwritten of the five books of Moses. What is a Torah scroll? A Torah scroll are the five books of Moses written by a quill pen with vegetable ink, with kind of homemade ink, on a parchment and animal skin that's been sewn into a very long scroll. So they'll get rectangular sections, maybe around 23 to 24 inches high, about 30 inches wide, and onto each one of those with a quill pen, a sofer, a scribe, will write out a copy of the five books of Moses that is then sewn edge to edge, and the entire scroll, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are called the Torah collectively. So that is the main part of a synagogue service on a Saturday morning. They read the word of God in a traditional orthodox synagogue. In more liberal synagogues, it's, it's a bit more diluted. And uh, that is unfortunate because the word of God should be central. Now, in addition to the reading from the Torah, from the books of Moses, there is also an additional reading called the Haftarah reading. The Haftarah is a reading from the prophets that are somehow thematically related to the Torah reading. And so they'll look at the Torah reading for that week, which are typically about four chapters, and then they'll try to find something in the prophets that kind of goes along with that, the Haftarah reading. So in this instance, you're about to get a glimpse into Jesus actually using this Haftarah reading. So he comes to Nazareth, verse 16, as where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. You stand up to read, it's the word of God. And he opened the book of the prophet Isaiah, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, literally a large scroll, was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now here's what it says in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. With that, he rolls the scroll back up, and then he says something to them that was astonishing. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. He didn't sit down in the audience. He sat down at the front, because that's the tradition. When you read the the scriptures, you're standing, And then when you're about to teach, you sit down in front of the congregation. So he sits down in front of the congregation, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And Messiah then began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
It was a very powerful moment. In English, it doesn't come through as much. But let me, as the kids say, hip you to what's going on in verse 18. In verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord, literally, Ruach Yehovah, the Spirit of Jehovah, the Ruach, the the Spirit of, of God, is upon me. Why? Verse 18, because he has anointed me. Except the original Hebrew text does not say that. The original Hebrew text says, he has Mashiached me. He has made me the Mashiach. He has Messiahed me. We use it as a verb. He has Messiahed me. He has made me Mashiach. Why? To preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's where he stopped. Wait a second. Doesn't the passage go on? Let's do a little detective work and find where in Isaiah Messiah Jesus was reading from. He was reading from Isaiah chapter 61. And so I'm going to turn back and let's, let's snoop. Let's take a little look and see if there was a reason why Jesus didn't read the entire passage. So the Haftarah portion, the portion from the prophets that week, was from Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read that portion to you. And this is the portion, the exact portion that Messiah Jesus would have read in that synagogue on a single scroll that just contained the scroll of Isaiah. It says there, and you'll recognize this immediately because this is what Jesus read, the spirit of the Lord God, of Jehovah God, the spirit of Jehovah God is upon me. Because Jehovah has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord, comma. Then there's another sentence. And the day of vengeance of our God. Wait a second. Jesus, why didn't you read the whole passage? Why did you stop mid-verse? There's a reason why he stopped mid-verse. Many Old Testament messianic prophecies have what fancy theologians call a telescoping sort of prophecy. In other words, in, in messianic prophecy, there are prophecies that have a single focus, they may talk about the birth of Messiah. There are other prophecies like Luke chap- I'm sorry, Psalm 22, which talk only about the death of Messiah. But then there are other scripture passages which have the career of the Messiah consecutively lined up. Imagine if you went up to a high mountain. Okay, it's early morning. It's dimly lit, and there is fog in between the valleys. Okay, you see, this is the scenario. You're standing on top of the mountain. It's clear up there. But in the valleys, there is dense fog. It's common here in the east. Uh, you go in Pennsylvania and the Endless Valley area. You go you're standing on the top. It's clear. You can see the mountaintops. You can see the, the ridges. That's a very common sight in Pennsylvania. You'll see those ridges. 
But in between, in the early morning, there's still fog in the valleys. So as you look across, you're dimly seeing these, these mountain ridges, these ridges that off in the distance, you're seeing one ridge, you're seeing another ridge, you're seeing another ridge. So you're looking across the ridges, but you can't see into the valleys. In many types of messianic prophecy, that is what is put before you. You are scoping out the entire career of Messiah. You're seeing the events of his coming, of his birth. But then off in the distance, there are additional things that are described, which are the later events of Messiah. Because we understand that when Messiah came, he came as what scripture is called Mashiach ben Yosef. He came as Messiah, the son of Joseph. But there were many things that Messiah was supposed to do that Jesus didn't do. This is why if you ask Orthodox rabbis today, why don't you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And they would say to you, do you have Isaiah chapter 2 in your Bible? And you say, of course I do. Let me t- let's turn to it, please. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. That, my Christian friend, is what the Messiah was supposed to do. Your Jesus didn't do it. That's why I reject him. Good day. Kind of harsh, but that's what they'll tell you. And as you're struggling to get out a response, his black coat is already in the distance. The reality is that the career of Messiah has two very distinct phases. He is described as a person who is acquainted with grief, like one from whom we hid our face. We did not look upon him as anything attractive. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This describes a suffering Messiah, and it describes the first advent of Messiah. It describes his first arrival. But then there are other passages which describe Messiah. It says, oh, he's coming at the head of an army. He's going, there, there's a sword from his mouth. He comes at a, at, in front of a horde of righteous individuals who are all riding horses. And they're going to take care of business and defeat the enemies of God. And he's going to bring in the kingdom of God. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. Well, what happened to that Messiah? So the rabbis would say, well, we, that's the Messiah we're interested in. We're not interested in this suffering Messiah. We are only interested in this, this conquering Messiah. But I say, you don't have a choice. So it wasn't that the Messiah had to do all these things all at once. Neither are there two different Messiahs, as some in Judaism would claim. But rather, there is just one Messiah who comes twice. At his first coming... He comes as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, the suffering son of Joseph, who was the the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being, for our shalom, fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our sin was laid upon him. That describes the first advent of Messiah. 
Then there is this valley of time between the majestic first coming and the majestic return of Messiah. There's this long valley of time. It's shrouded in mist. It's what we're in right now, folks. And sometimes we struggle to look out of the fog. We can see these mountaintops, but where are we now? Why did Jesus stop in the middle of reading Isaiah 61? Because if you look back at the passage, this describes both arrivals of Messiah. This describes both his job descriptions. The Spirit of Jehovah has anointed me because the Lord has made me Mashiach. He has anointed me to bring, number one, good news to the afflicted. The people of Israel, the people of the world are very afflicted. God does not esteem one group of people over another. God does not prefer Jews over Gentiles. God is not willing that any should perish. God had concern for the people in the furthest reaches of Asia. I have many uh, Filipino friends. And there are verses that read that God is concerned about the islands, the far islands of the sea. They said, that's us. Yes, yes it is. He was concerned about you. For the, the, the vast numbers of people in Asia, in South America. That's what Isaiah chapter 49 said. It's not enough that you should be my Messiah to restore the, the people of Israel. I will also make you a light onto the Gentile nations. And so this is what, in these first few verses, this is what is described. He has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. God is concerned about people with broken hearts. And there are far more of them walking around than we dare to imagine. He has sent Messiah to proclaim liberty to the captives. Every single one of us was captive to the cycle of sin and death and sin and death. You don't think you're a captive? You were. And you're not now if you've come to faith in Messiah Jesus. But we're all captive. We weren't meant to live 80, 90, or 100 years. We were created for eternity. We are captive to the cycle and the result of sin. Liberty to the captive, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But then, what's the next verse? And the day of vengeance of our God. You see, both careers, both advents of Messiah are kind of telescoped together. When you look through, I'm about to reveal, you know, betray my age. In the old 35 millimeter camera days, you'd look through the, the viewfinder, and if you had a telephoto lens on, what it would do, it would bring people close. It would make them look like they're standing right next to each other when there could have been 30 feet between them because a telescopic lens, it mashes together the great distances. Wide angle does the opposite. Everything looks much further away. A person would be standing five feet away, looks like they're a mile away with a very wide angle lens. But this is what prophecy does. It's looking, it's looking across the mountaintops. And here in chapter 61 of Isaiah, the scope of the overall ministry of Messiah is described. Good news to the afflicted, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, the freedom to the prisoners, proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Full stop. Because then what does the next verse describe? 
the next verse describes, and the day of vengeance of our God. When is the day of vengeance of our God coming? It's coming at the return of Messiah. Because when he comes to establish his visible earthly kingdom, he's taken care of business. And all of those who dared to oppose the plan of God are going to see the day of vengeance of the God they opposed. That's why he stopped. And he said, no, I'm not here at this coming to say that this is the day of vengeance of our God. I'm here to open up the gates wide so that whosoever can come. People of dark skin, people of light skin, people of every tribe and tongue and nation and continent are invited to the table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amazing, amazing love. And that's why in this passage we understand that this Jesus of Nazareth didn't suddenly say, hey, I see an opportune time here to begin a new religion. But rather he came as the fulfillment of all that the scriptures said would happen. He came to preach good news to those who were downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This is why the Apostle Paul said, We have not placed our faith in cleverly devised fables. Of all people, he was able to say that because he had the background of Torah study. He was reading God's word. He was anticipating the arrival of Messiah. And so when it became apparent that Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the same town in which King David was born and the town of which the prophet Micah said that that is the place that Messiah would be born. So the prophet Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The prophet Isaiah, 500 plus years before Jesus was born, prophesied, predicted under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The Spirit of the Lord will overshadow you and cause you to be with child and you will bear his son. And who will he be? He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. Which is exactly what Jesus was, and still is. All of these prophecies are nothing that could have been constructed by people looking to scheme and make some sort of new religion. But rather, they were out of the control, number one, of what people were able to do. Jesus had no control as a human baby over where he would be born. But rather, God worked in the circumstances. And amazingly to think that God even worked in the heart of the Roman authorities to say, all you Jews need to go back to where you were born in order for us to count you for the tax census. We want to tax you. And we can't get a handle on this because we have records going back from back then. We have our town records. And if you're not there, we're going to be suspicious. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem exactly the way the scriptures prophesied 500 years earlier. Even the manner of his death was prophesied in Psalm 22. All of my bones are out of joint. 
they pierced my hands and my feet. The whole idea of the life of Messiah portrayed hundreds of years before he was born. So that's why we can understand Paul saying, we have not believed in carefully devised fables. We couldn't have controlled these things. We couldn't have cobbled this together to make some crafty, multi-level marketing sort of scheme. No, no, this is, I'm staking my life on this. You have to understand what I've come from. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin. I had all of these things. But now I'm an outcast from my own community because I've dared to say the Messiah has arrived. Why is that so dangerous? Because the religious authorities of the day, two different groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had different reasons for rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus. The Pharisees were tied around man-made rules, regulations, and traditions. They were in the midst of passing down something called the oral law, which eventually would be written down as the Talmud. Their loyalty was to the traditions rather than the word of God. And the Sadducees, they were in bed with the Romans. They had rejected the prophets. They had just wanted their power base there in the temple. And they would say, as long as we have the temple and we have the Roman goodwill, this is going to last a thousand years. For each of those two groups, the arrival of the Messiah was a threat. They were following man-made religion rather than anticipating the hope that God had held up. You and I need to have a faith that is informed from the scripture. Church tradition is fine. You know, I know all the hymns in that red hymnal. Church tradition is fine. I love church tradition. It's very nice. It helps to, to teach us and inform us. But at the end of the day, the traditions of men are fallible. They can fail. They can shift. One only has to witness the apostasy of many churches of our day and how far they've gotten from the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Friends, let's be a people in God's word anticipating the return of Messiah. Because when he returns, if we've lined ourselves up with Messiah Jesus, we're already on the winning side. Let's stick to him. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, we praise you. We thank you for so great a salvation. We thank you that so long ago in the pages of Scripture you promised to send the Mashiach. And when the time was full, the Messiah came and he takes away our sin as far as east is from the west, so far does he take our sin away. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for that precious truth and would pray that uh, we would be instructed from your word in all things. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Messiah Jesus. Amen and amen.